when I when I get the thumb of approval, there's the thumb of approval. Do I have the confirmation, which has no real authority, but but it's it's kind of gives us a binary condition. So, are you saying that I should start? Is that what you're doing? Okay. Well, here we go then. May the eighth. Uh, let's take the glasses off. I get rid of them for now. May the eighth, two thousand twenty-two. Lecture discussion number one seventy-three on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis one through three, and Genesis fifteen. I got some uh, announcements really fast. Uh, first announcement is is that we're on this summer schedule, and so uh, we will not be. We will not have class next week, but we will have it back on May the 22nd. So we're going every other week, and uh, we're trying to get as much as we can do as quickly as we can and so we can get back to, to normal. And, of course, normal is a relative term. Uh, also an announcement is over here you see this 12130 Woodway Circle, Anchorage, Alaska, 99516. That is our new address. It's not a new address. It's been always the address. But we had a post office box and we had to cancel the post office box because it just got too expensive for us. So we did, we have done that and the mail is now going to that address, which you might recognize if you look it up to see just how weird I am. Okay. Well, let's see. And also, I wanted to say uh, I appreciate all the people that um, uh, sent me Cinco de Stevo thing. It's just amazing. I have something that is representative of the vast cliff, uh, cliffside internet audience. Uh, I can't get more representative than this, so I will, I will read it to you. But I just, every one of you that, that have, uh, it just is a wonderful morale builder for me to hear from you. So here it is, the letter. Notice it's in very large print. Okay, to the Cyc- Cyclopean Cadaverous HTRP. Remember, I used to say pretty big bull talk for one-eyed fat man, so, but he's changed it to Cyclopean Cadaverous HDRP. It was my full intention to sit down and peck out this message yesterday, but alas, my schedule precluded me. So much for the day-late portion of the well-known aphorism, and, I, and need I exp- explain the rest. I wanted to say happy Cinco de Stevo, and I am really enjoying the current series. Now, keep in mind that people who listen to me are sarcastic. <laughs> Especially the bit featuring the triangular sum shortcut, n times n plus 1 over 2 equals 153. Mind-blowing. <laughs> Thinking about n reminded me of Euler's numbers, 2.71828, and 1 plus 1 over n times n, which made me think of horizontal asymptotes. What do all of these things have in common, or rather, what do they lead to? Hmm, speaking of 18, Euler applied to n from the previous equation, why would a man full of understanding cast two bronze pillars 18 cubits high? And what does this have to do with a demon-possessed woman healed on the Sabbath by, the, by a spoken word? Are you confused? Now you know how I feel. <laughs> the only difference between me and Steve, the aged, most holy marker in hand. Where is the holy marker? Okay, there we go. I have to have it in hand, apparently. Beating away with a smirk of satisfaction, knowing all to himself that the horse has been long dead, is that I'm not convincing anyone that I have a point. (laughs) Anyway, I'm loving the lectures and looking forward to the next installment. Thanks you for everything. I hope you had a great birthday. Well, Lucas from Ohio, and I definitely did have a great birthday. If you can have great birthdays at my age. Okay, enough of that. I suspended Lecture 172. Uh, I'm not even sure what day it was. What was it? Ah, this is it was in in April, wasn't it? Because we skipped the first. So I suspended lecture 172 in the midst of the two gates of Matthew uh, 7, 13 through 14, and the undivided two birds of Genesis 15:10. And then I had this long cursory list of the twos of the Bible. Obviously, it was a very short list. I didn't even come close to getting all the twos of the Bible there. But keep that in mind. That's where we ended. And some might think it would be reasonable to go back to that list and to continue onward from which. Uh, Whence we conclude it. However, reasonable, I should say. I should emphasize reasonable. It would be reasonable. The problem quickly arises with the relativity of the word reasonable, however. Obviously, reasonable is a relative term and subject to spacious definitions. Uh, For example, my reasonable does not always, and some might say ever, does not ever include consistency. At least 
Consistency also a relative term. My consistency may not be your consistency. Yeah, that's, that's a biblical uh, theological point. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So anyway, I have no consistency with respect to sequentiality. I don't go in order. And the reason I don't go in order, and my rationalization for this is uh, usually defaulted to the excuse that it's necessary to introduce as much of and as many of the relevant verses as possible to the subject being cur- and the one being currently addressed, in this case, Genesis 15. I want to make sure that you know as much as I can how much... How, the totality of Genesis 15, how it goes all the way through Scripture. And, and hopefully you see the problem then. The passages that are relevant to Genesis 15 are the entire 31,102. He gets them all. Such is the nature of Genesis 15. And all of the Scripture, it's interconnected. I've said that, I hope, enough to people realize that it is, it is so similar to the human body. It's amazing. All of the connectivity to it. Genesis 15 is an obvious example of how the Bible explodes in every direction. So we are left, uh, we can't get all the verses because we've got to get all 31,102. So we do the best we can approach. And we have to do that until Jeremiah 31:33 in Hebrews 10:16, Galatians 3:13 and 14. That's the new covenant. When the new covenant comes, the new covenant occurs, Bible teachers are out of business. We finally get rid of them. Me included. I know I've, I've talked to people that say, I can't wait to be a Bible teacher in heaven. Well, guess what? That's like being a pilot. You're not gonna, you, I mean, come on. You're going to be a gardener, or you're going to paint bridges, or do sheetrock, or something like that. But you're not going to be a Bible teacher because of Jeremiah 31, 33, Hebrews 10, 16, Galatians 3, 13, and 14. He writes it on us. And so we're all Bible teachers, except there's no one to teach. Uh, and I should speak right there. With Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, has lots of controversy around it. I'll speak to the view, the one that's the worst one, I think, that asserts that Israel is the only recipient of the new covenant in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. So Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three says the new covenant is for Israel, and it, and it is exclusive. And you'll see that view all over. And Paul refutes that at Hebrews ten, sixteen, and Galatians three, thirteen, and fourteen, and Romans nine, six through eight. Where the See, the new covenant is the blessing of Abraham. Where is the blessing of Abraham? If you said Genesis 15, you're right. That's where the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. The blessing of Abraham is Genesis 15, 9 through 18. And Paul brings that up in Galatians 3, 13, 14, Romans 9, 6 through 8. And again, Genesis 5, 15, 9 through 18, that is where Christ, and I'm going to say Christ Melchizedek. I could say them both. They're interchangeable. Melchizedek. And again, um, where Christ, Genesis 15, 1 through 8, and Genesis 14, 18, 27, explains why Abraham is giving the blessing. The blessing of Abraham. Why is Abraham being blessed? And he's being blessed because of Genesis 15, 6, where he believed. Abraham believed. So the blessing, I don't want to say, because I can't speak, this is humanistically speaking. We see a cause and effect because we're inside of time. We see a correlation because we're inside of time. And so my inside of time thinking is Abraham rejected the lie of Satan and he believed God. Those two are connected. That's Genesis 14, 22 through 23. Abraham raises his hand to Melchizedek, the Lord God, the Most High the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, you can say he's not doing it to Melchizedek. That's what they'll say. But I'm saying the opposite. Abraham raised his hand to Melchizedek because Melchizedek was Christ. He is Christ in that picture. The pre-incarnate Christ. And he's the Lord God. He's the God most high. He's the possessor of heavens and earth. Anyhow, Matthew 6.13, that is the Lord's Prayer provides information, I hope you remember, as to the significance of Genesis 14, 22-23. The lie of Satan concerns the enslavement of the people to Satan. 
That's one of the lie aspects of the lie of Satan, is that he uses it to enslave people to him. And so he's asking for Abraham to give those people over to slavery to him. And Abraham rejects that. He keeps them what? If they're not slaved, what are they? What's the alternative? What's the converse? If you, or the inverse? I'm sorry, it's freedom. He keeps the people free. Free is a very important word here. And I hope that that all came through in lecture 172. Why does Satan want to enslave these people? Why does God permit it? How does Satan accomplish it? How, he knows he can enslave them. If they do not have will, how can I enslave them? So again, the issue of will is taking place in Genesis 14 through 24 because, I'm sorry, 14, uh, 22 through, uh, 23, 18 through 24. The issue is will there because Satan is asking to make slaves out of them. And the only way that can happen is if he can t- rob them of their free will. And Abraham says no. Okay, where was I? Why do I always ask where was I? I do it a lot. I could put it on the board. I'm running out of places of putting things that I constantly repeat. I do not know. You are exactly right. Took it right from me. I do not know where I am. Can I ever know where I am? <laughs> but I'm asking today, where am I? Because today is Mother's Day, as you know. Hooray, Mother's Day. And it is demanded that my lecture today be for Mother's Day, because that's how you do it in the religious professional business. And I am a religious professional. I, I, it is demanded, and we have flowers. You thought they were for me, didn't you? They could be. We don't know. Anyway, I, I'm supposed to accommodate the Mother's Day theme today. I guarantee you that overwhelmingly every church in town gave out flowers and did something for Mother's Day. And I'm doing the same thing, except no one here can come and get the flowers. I have flowers, and I'm doing something absolutely special for Mother's Day, being the highly trained religious professional that I am. And obviously, uh, uh, I need to do this. I need to defer to the Mother's Sunday tradition. And adjust my entire itinerary. Get rid of my normal lecturing stuff and do something specific again that elevates mothers and speaks to mothers and everybody cries. That's what I have to do. And I'm good at it. Okay, I'm not good at it at all. And so today I normally would be doing the blessing of Abraham as I started. And I would ask questions like this. For whom does the blessing of Abraham extend? Does it uh, extend to the angelic realm? Do they need to be blessed with the blessing of Abraham? Does it extend to the animal kingdom? What is God's definition of the blessing of Abraham? What is it? When he says you have the blessing of Abraham, what is he speaking about? He's speaking about eternal life in the new city of Jerusalem. So there again, does it extend to the angelic host and does it extend to the animal kingdom? I think that definition is the correct one. If you are a citizen of the new city of Jerusalem, you have the blessing of Abraham. Anyway, to be truthful, I intended to do this today's segment that I'm doing. I, I, I wanted to do it in Lecture 172 last, last time we got together here back in April. But I ran out of time. The constraints of time took over again, as it does every week. And I couldn't get it in. So I deleted it last week. I recognized I got to page 16 or 17. I was up to eight, 9,000 words. And I said, okay, I cannot do what I'm going to do this week. And then I found out it was Mother's Day. So, but fortuitously and unknowingly, because I didn't know, and I'll keep beating that in for a while today, uh, I disregarded that which, and I expunged it. I didn't know that by expunging it that I got the consummate Mother's Day and Genesis 15 lecture combined. So what I got rid of actually fits beautifully on Mother's Day with Genesis 15. So the two birds, the two gates, the subject matter, it's the perfect material for Mother's Day and Genesis 15. I know how amazing is that? How does he do it? I, I know. And I did not include circumcision. You're absolutely right about that. Now, but you're probably asking, because uh, I know how it all works, what could possibly have relevance to the Genesis undivided two birds and the two gates and Mother's Day? What could do all of that? 
Well, duh. Obviously, that would be orchestrated objective reduction. Obvious. My gosh, that's what it is. <laughs> that's a postulate, by the way. That's not terrible. How many lectures has it taken me to get, by the way, to six? That's pretty darn impressive, I'm saying. Orchestrated objective reduction is a postulate. And, and, and uh, not only are we doing orchestrated reduction a postulate today, or, uh, orchestrated objective reduction postulates, uh, the postulate, uh, but we're also doing first and second incompleteness theorems. And because those are classic Mother's Day Classic, and you'll see why in a minute. Okay, a couple hours. Okay, one hour. And I know what you're thinking because it's my job to know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does mathematical logic and a biological theory that incorporates wave function collapse have to do with Mother's Day? Everything. Or as I like to call it, it's not just Mother's Day. What is it really? It is the seed of the woman's day. That's what it is. Because through the seed of the woman comes what? She's the living. She's the mother of the living. Who are the living? They are the one that have the blessing of Abraham. They're the new city of Jerusalem citizens. And I will concede that no one, nowhere has ever thought what does mathematical logic and a biological theory that incorporates wave function collapse have to do with Mother's Day. No one has ever said that that sentence, I think, in history until now. So we are making history. Gosh. Again, how does he do it? Where does the inspiration come? I, I, I don't know. Notice how I said that. Hopefully, I'm going to facilitate a seismic transformation otherwise in the contemporary church. I have a dream. Just imagine if from now forward, every church throughout the world on the seed of the woman's day, every pastor, every lecturer, presents Goodell's two incompleteness theorems and Penrose, Lucas, Hammerhoff's postulates on orchestrated redu objective reduction theory. Just imagine if we could do that. And I'm halfway serious because what we do in the church trying to teach the congregants and the children is pathetic. We just don't get it done. And we send them completely clueless and defenseless into the school systems and where they get annihilated and blasted and a few of them straggle out surviving. And as you know, I started Cliffside with the concept that we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to try to fight back at the highest possible levels. And, but if you were to do Goodell's two incompleteness theorems and Penrose, Lucas, Hammerhoff's postulates, as, as I think you should, but I just want you to imagine the result, that would just for now just think about the emptiness of the massive auditoriums that would occur if you tried this. <laughs> the, the cacophonous snoring that resonates from the tens of congregates that remain, right? They, and they had to be forced to attend. They're all probably paid staff. Have you had any idea how much paid staff is in a mega church? You would be stunned. They pay the ushers, they pay the elders, they pay people to come and sit in the, in the auditorium. They pay for people to, to attend. Their staff is forced to attend, and so they, they have to bring their kids, and so they get, they get a certain percentage of the auditorium filled up just with paid people and extended families. And that game has been going, and a crowd produces a crowd. That's the philosophy or the, or the rationalization. But anyway, if everybody who got that, all of those people, they would be asleep within by page five, which has happened here. There would be huge drool buckets filled to overflowing. It would be fantastic. It makes me tremble with joy just thinking about them trying it. Okay. <laughs> what exactly, I think, is what you're thinking well, not exactly. That's not right. Uh, what is basically orchestrated objective reduction? And I should start, I should point out that Roger Penrose is a theoretical physicist mathematician. That's what he is. Stuart Hammerhoff is an anesthesiologist. So he deals with what? Consciousness. 
He's also an oncology researcher, and he's a he studies a neuronal psychoskeleton. So he is. They were intimately involved. They are in, intimately involved in consciousness and the neurological structure of a human being or an animal. John R. Lucas is a philosopher. I think he's passed away. I'm not sure. John Randolph Lucas. Uh, he has an, he had an extensive understanding of mathematics and logic systems. And so these three guys produced this orchestrated objective reduction theory. And they were countering something. They had decided to fight back. So you can deduce their intentions by evaluating their qualifications. John Randolph Root Lucas wrote Freedom of the Will. There you go. Huh? Now you know why I'm so interested in these guys. He wrote Freedom of the Will. And, and, and in case you required a little bit more information, anesthesiology, as I've said in the past, is marinated in the debate of consciousness. And that's what John R. Lucas, Diane Randolph Lucas, wanted to know. And, and, and what about Goodell? Because Goodell has the two incomplete, incompleteness theorems. How does mathematical incompleteness figure into this equation? Clearly, Goodell's incompleteness theorems, and he generated them in 1931. And when he did so, he flipped mathematics upside down. Absolutely flipped it upside down. Is everything okay, young lady? Because you're looking nervous like we have some kind of... No, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Okay. Well, we'll continue. But you need to know that uh, Kurt Goodell, Goodell, probably more correct, his incompleteness theorems conjectured that mathematical truth and mathematical proof were not equivalent. He said, when you have mathematical truth and you have mathematical proof, those are different, not the same thing, not equivalent. Before Goodell, all mathematics questions were considered to be undeniably resolvable. You could answer all of them, either as proven or as false, a negation. So you can prove them true or prove them negated. Goodell said, no, you can't. Goodell's incompleteness theorems turned this belief again, completely destroyed it. And he, truth is that which describes the way all things are. And proof is another matter altogether. It is that which we know is true. Let me repeat that. Truth is that which describes the ways all things are. That's truth. But proof is not that. It is that which we know is true. That's the proof. I have truth, but I have proofs. They're not the same. Anyhow, as soon as you hear that which we know is true, you all shout out because where are we in the Bible? If you answer Genesis 15.8, you are right. How can I know that I'm saved? No. How can I know it's true? That's what Abraham asked. That is Godel's Incompleteness theorem, 1931. You see, if you pursue a mathematical question eventually to prove that it is true or false, that's going to require computations that are what? Infinite. I have to have infinite capability. I have to have infinite computations. And you might say, huh, why is that? Finite mankind can never know anything that is actually true. How's that for a statement? Can't do it. Or false. Can't know if it's true or false. Neither is provable. And that is, of course, mathematically the case. True cannot be proved, nor can false. And now, now you're welcome to Goodell's incompleteness theorem. Everything is incomplete. What are the ramifications if, if Goodell, Goodell is correct? And he, Goodell is correct. What are the ramifications... If everything is incomplete. And what's the definition of everything? To repeat, mankind can never know anything is actually true or false. Neither of those are provable mathematically. They are right. How much more is more? How much more is there? And you're talking about what concept? The Aleph top, right? 
true and false. Uh, let me let me go a different direction here, because numbers reach into infinity. No one can know if some numbers exist that disprove a mathematical principle. Incompleteness then is bounded to what? If you said uncertainty, randomness, non-computability, you would be absolutely correct. Everyone should know that incompleteness is bonded to uncertainty. And you, again, we should all shout and cheer and say, yay, uncertainty. Why do we cheer uncertainty? To rephrase the issue, mathematical logic systems can be said to be true. You can say they're true based on a finite, reliable sample. So I can come up, I can say this is true based on this finite sample of mathematical calculation. You can say that. But being true, again, is not the same as being proven true. And that's what Goodell was getting at. He noticed that in the creation there was incompleteness. And if there is incompleteness, you have to say, what's causing incompleteness? What is related to incompleteness? And he, again, uh, Goodell's logic was absolutely unassailable eventually. Mathematical statements can be produced. They can be assembled and determined to be true, but finite human beings cannot prove that they are true. Following the precepts of Goodell's first incompleteness theorem. So, if mankind can't prove anything's true, then what are we left with? Can angels prove something true? No, they can't. How come? They're finite like we are. How about animals? I'm going to ask a couple of easy questions. Who's complete? If we're incomplete, who's complete? Who says that they are complete? And who says that they are the only complete? Who said that? And I, I said a minute ago, I proposed that Goodell's incompleteness theorems are welded to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and Bell's inequality theorem and information law and quantum entanglement and not nuclear spin. All of those things are the same ultimate topic or subject. I didn't say it exactly like that, but so I'm saying it now. All them things testify of incompleteness. So there's Goodell. Goodell. You see, quantum physics is probabilistic. Probabilistic. There, got it out. In other words, probability. Remember me saying that all the time? We don't know where a particle is. We can never know. That's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. But we can, based on probability, make a determination. So we can't know, we can't prove anything, but we can say this is true. Probably. So again, quantum physics absolutely agrees with Goodell. Mankind, finite mankind can construct probabilities as the locations, for example, of quantum particles. But there is a hidden unknowability. There's always unknowability. Remember me saying there are no zero probabilities. Right? So there's this hidden unknowability within the created physical universe, something obviously that is revealed in Scripture. The Bible got it right. How amazing. The creator of everything that made everything knew that there was a hidden unknowability. When I say unknowability, now I'm talking about unknowability that aligns with omniscience and they coexist. But how does unknowability coexist with omniscience? How does that happen? That's a great debate, and in, in, that's Calvin and Arminius, right? One says that there is no unknowability. Everything is superdetermined. The other says that there is unknowability. There's randomness and there's freedom. So how can I have unknowability and omniscience? How do they coexist? And they have to, co- they have to coexist by one function, by the will of the person that created it. They exist because he wills it existing. His will has authority. Whose will is that again? Who said that his will has this kind of power? Why did he say it? But for today, the plan for this lecture is to get you all completely asleep and go. That that what I just read earlier. Let me read the same thing again. Let's see where is that. 
Are you confused? Now you know how I feel. Back at you, Luke. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> the plan for today for this lecture is to introduce the concept of incompletion, incompletion, incompletionness and its implications on knowing. If everything is incomplete from our perspective, then how can we know anything? That's specifically, again, Genesis 15.8, Abraham's extraordinary question to God. How can I know I will possess eternal salvation? A finite being cannot know that because he can't account for any and all things. But yet Abraham can know. How does Abraham get to know something that is, in, from his perspective, incomplete? Christ answered Abraham's question, how can I know that I will possess... Again, I can repeat this very carefully. How can I know I will possess eternal salvation? Christ answers that wonderful, amazing question because that's an incompleteness theorem question. That is an orchestrated reduction question, objective reduction Christ answers that amazing question with take me. He says, take me. That's how you can do it. The only way you can know is to take me. So know and take me absolutely connected. Critical to know that. Know that. Essentially, Abraham can know only through the taking of Jesus Christ who is, of course, Melchizedek there. Could a non, could anybody who just happens to be around, you know, just a guy, could he, could he put this together? The people that think Melchizedek is just some guy, it doesn't make sense to me. This is uh, incredibly complicated material here that we didn't even discover the complexity of it again until 1931 with Goodell. Good. I keep pronouncing it wrong. Abraham can only know through the taking of Jesus Christ. What does that mean exactly? How is the undividing of the two birds relate to this statement that he makes and this question that he asks? Abraham asks a question. Christ makes an answer. How does the undividing of the two birds relate to Genesis 15:8? Because they have to. They must. They're part of the take me, since they are. The two undivided birds are within the take me, being the fourth and the fifth components of it. So obviously we are discussing yet again super determinism, super deterministic beliefs versus indeterminism. That's what we're doing here today. Again, we keep doing it because it's so important. Penrose, and again, let me repeat, I want every high school kid to know all of this before he goes into a college. Everyone, I want them all fluent with Penrose, Hammerhoff, and Lucas, and Goodell, and Bell's inequality, and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You have that ammunition, and you have the Bible. You are in business. You are unassailable. Penrose, Hammerhoff, and Lucas have obviously chosen, they are adjoined themselves, they adjoined themselves with indeterminism, with free will. That's what they did in case you haven't uh, figured that out yet. They seized upon the unknown aspect of wave function collapse. Remember those lectures. I hope you do. That's interferometry. That's waveforms collapsing into particle based on observation. That's the observation or the observer effect. Uh, that's um, Which you might remember from the lecture series, I don't know how many years ago it has been, but that's Schrodinger's cat, right? Superposition, superposed cat. That superposed cat was part of that. Again, two states had collapsed into one state upon observation of an observer from a frame of reference. All of that. Anyway, the Penrose Hammerhoff Lucas argument saw that the collapse of a wave system as they saw the collapse of a wave system as the collision of the quantum realm with the classical realm. So quantum particle physics, the subatomic realm, world if you want to think of it that way, creation. And the classical realm, which is me and you and all this material. That's, there's a collision here between the 
collapse of the wave system in quantum uh, physics or quantum mechanics and the classical physics of the classical realm. And we're thinking of it this way. I got two realms right now, don't I? I have the angelic realm and I have the human and the animal realm. And they collide. One of them is, is they're completely different. And that's my commentary. Uh, Penrose and those guys, they did not say it to my knowledge. Anyway, again, another anyway. Penrose advanced the argument that wave function collapse was a non-computable phenomenon. In other words, you could not compute it. And this one is a brilliant mathematician. Lucas, a logician and a mathematician. And, an, you know, we have... No, I'm sorry. Yeah, and then we have the anesthesiologist who was into neuroscience. Hammerhoff. These guys said, this is non-computable. And therefore, there's no mechanical or mechanistic uh, mathematical process could determine or could predict the outcome of it. So what is it? It's hidden unknowability at the particle level. And notice the reoccurring themes of the day. What is knowable? What is uncertain? How does incompleteness and randomness and non-computability coexist with superdeterminism? It does not. It does not. The answer is not. The answer is they don't. All of these and others I have intentionally uh, left off. All of these and the, uh, let me say that better. All of these and the others that I have intentionally left off of this lecture uh, coexist with free will. They don't, they don't coexist with superdeterminism. They coexist with free will. And consciousness. Penrose and, and Haberoff and Lucas were seeking to account for free will consciousness. They recognized free will consciousness was a fact. It, was, it can't be disputed. They intuitively knew it. It's called the volatility of individualized choosing. And they went, how did this happen? What's going on? And ultimately, they formulated a biological theory, orchestrated objective reduction. That's their theory. And they have reasons for calling it that. I could put you absolutely into a comas if I started talking about that. So I won't. But I should interject that no human, no animal, no angel has ever been duplicated. There's no duplication. Duplication is impossible mathematically. Because just all of us are overwhelmingly mathematically distinct and unique, exactly as Psalm 139.14 tells us. I am the only one who has thought my thoughts. Thank God. <laughs> but so for you, no one has thought your thoughts, and that is the conscious level. How about the subconscious level? How about the information that's inside your body that you don't even know exists? There's trillions and trillions of, of pieces of information go on in us all the time. All that you have ever thought, our, our information is absolutely exclusive, and it, again, it includes information that we have no knowledge of, the automated physical processes. Where am I now? Where was I? Who knows? Penrose launched. Let me look at the time. Oh, wow, I'm killing it. Let's kick back. Penrose launched into the origin of consciousness and free will, much to the disdain of the superdeterminists that dominate physics, mathematics, and biology. He did not make friends. He suggested that consciousness is a quantum function. That's what he thought. A quantum level mechanism that's inside the neuronal psychoskeleton. And it's hidden in every neuron. That was his... And I'm like, I, listen, those of you who are experts in this subject, and I don't pretend to be an expert, I try to be at least competent, uh, I may be misrepresenting him. I've never met Roger Penrose. Uh, he hasn't called me yet. Don't expect he will. But I, I hope I'm accurately... He believed that all the consciousness was hidden in every neuron. Orchestrated objective reduction discards the conventional model of emergentism. Emergent, uh, emergentism says that the brain develops and consciousness emerges from the developed brain. And that has always been an incompetent, deficient proposal, and Penrose recognized that. 
him and Lucas and Hammerhall. So they were about trying to find something that had made some sense. Uh, emergentism assumes that consciousness is, uh, is physical, which we know it's not. I mean, intuitively, we know that. But uh, uh, orchestrated objective reduction assumes that consciousness is far, far more complicated, far beyond in complexity uh, to this accepted physical emergentism-based concept or precept. Penrose also thought that gravitational phenomena was intricately associated with consciousness, almost said communism. Gosh. Well, let me say this for just for fun. Since I've just got to kill time now. <coughs> Not really, I've got to speed up. Communism does what communism always does, kill people. Kill innocent people, slaughter people, annihilate people, exterminate people, commit genocide. That's what communism does. Always, it always does it. It never doesn't do it. It's doing it again. So everybody out there in this country that thinks that kind of philosophy of governmental rule is productive, it's never productive. It's always a failure, and it always butchers and murders people. It's an evil. I've said that before. I'll say it again. Okay. Penrose thought that gravitational phenomenon was was melded, associated with consciousness, and he thought that gravity exerts a force or the force on the quantum interactions in the neurons. That's what he proposed. It was one of his suppositions. Now we know that we have a material in us that is non-physical. And can that non-physical material impact a physical device? We know that it, that it can. We know the non-physical can impact the physical. We know that emotions can create all kinds of responses physically in a person. We know that thoughts can. We know that uh, excitement, joy, depression can make physical changes. So we know that the non-physical will control or will impact the physical. We've always known that. But he was trying to find the mechanism of it. And so he thought gravity. He knew that there was some kind of governing energy in control. Where have I heard that there's some kind of governing energy in control? Where have I heard that before? Oh, well, that would be Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Shock. This is my shock face. Okay? Obviously, I have presented a remedial explanation of a decidedly complicated subject. So understand that. I just wanted to introduce it today. And for today, for now, we will endeavor to apply the significance of Goodell's or Goodell's incompleteness theorems. Why do I keep saying Goodell? I must have had somebody that I knew. So back to Abraham's question. Abraham's blessing, the two gates and the two birds. And obviously the statements of Christ where he describes himself. That's where we are now. Specifically, Revelation 1.8, Christ says that I am the Aleph Tav, the Infinite One. He's the Infinite One. Okay, previously, and I don't remember when, a few lectures ago, I said that the issue of free will would be in Genesis 15. I hope you remember that. And in addition, because it, it, I said that because I knew that free will had to be there because I knew there was free will. And Genesis 15 is this incredible passage. And, in, and because this, there's this encounter, this confrontation of Melchizedek, who is also described as the Aleph Tav, the infinite one, Hebrews 7, 3. And, and then with Melchizedek, I have the king of Sodom, who is the king of wicked, wickedness. And Genesis 14 comes after Genesis 13. What amazing things. But it does. It comes, 13, 13 in Genesis describes Sodom. says it is exceedingly wicked. So the king of Sodom is the king of the wicked. And I have the Aleph Tav there. And I have the king of the wicked. And then there's Abraham. So I have three of them here. In the midst. Abraham's, if you want to think of it this way, is in between them. Because I think that's appropriate. He's in the middle of them. He's in the middle. Think about that. What else is going to be in the middle in Genesis 15? So Genesis 14 and Genesis 15 obviously are so interconnected we can't get away from it. So and, and, and why? Again, think about I have Christ, because I do, 
the angel of the Lord. I have the, I have Abraham and I have the king of the wicked. So I have the fallen angels represented, the faithful angels represented, the animals represented because the animals are there too, right? In pieces, but they're there. They weren't in pieces at the time probably. And I have Abraham representing humanity. How significant is this in this meeting? You have to look at it and go, wow, what happened here? Genesis 14, 18 to 24. Anyway, the event, this, it's a moment of truth. It's a showdown, if you want to think of it that way, if you prefer. It must also include the refutation of Satan's super-deterministic lie, because that's his lie. If you have a super-deterministic position with regard to will, then you have the lie of Satan. I can't say that often enough either, because that's what he said in Genesis 3, 4 through 5. He said that free will is an illusion. Free will is a lie, he said, that God has perpetrated. Note the projection there. I have the liar and murderer accusing the holy God of creation of lying and murdering. Classic narcissism. Absolutely. You can see narcissism in, in Isaiah 14. You can see it in Genesis 28. That's Satan. The point is, yea, a point... That Christ came to this meeting. He caused the meeting. And when he came to the meeting, what did he bring? He brought something. He brought two things. What did he bring? He brought bread and he brought wine. And that is a reference back to Genesis 3.19. Where bread shows up there in John 6.35. Where he says, I am the bread of life. Genesis 3.19, of course, is eating bread. It's important. It's in, it brings Adam into the equation. And, and so you see the Adamic issue here as well. And I should say really quickly that Genesis 3.19 is the first mention of bread in the Bible, in Scripture. The first mention. And Genesis 14.8 happens to be the first mention of wine in the Bible, in Scripture. The first time that bread and wine are connected in the Bible is Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. Genesis 15.6 is the first mention of belief and believing. Genesis 15.1 is the first mention of fear not. Genesis 14.18 is the first mention of peace, salam, Jerusalem. First mention of priest. First mention of God most high. Genesis 14.20 is the first mention of the tie, the tenth. First mention of delivered. Okay, that's what we're dealing with. Genesis 14:18 through 15:18 is overrun with first mentions. It's almost all first mentions. It's unbelievable first mentions. Shield, reward, vision, great. Hopefully I've made the point. I probably haven't. How significant was that meeting? Melchizedek, Christ himself, the angel has attended. He's shown himself. The king of the wicked is there. And what follows in all of these astonishing, unprecedented announcements, revelations, they come and they bombard Abraham and us because we share the blessing of Abraham. Hebrews 7, 1, 7, 6, Galatians 3, 6 through 7. Which means Christ Jesus God, Acts 2, 32, must have reputed, repudiated, refuted, repudiated the lie of Satan. As it pertains to Genesis 3, 4 through 5. And in Genesis 3, 4 through 5, the lie of Satan is discussing whether or not the woman has will. Is she a robot, an automaton, or does she have the will? Can she choose? Can she disobey? Does she have will? That's the, that's the issue of Genesis 3, 4 through 5. And so Jesus Christ, when he's there, that, that's coming up again because of the enslavement issue. So we've got to find the evidence in Genesis 15, 1 through 18. We've got to find the, the proof of it being false, the negation of it. And might I suggest Genesis 15, 9 is the linchpin. That's the take me. Again, I can't remember. I'm older. I'm aged. I'm obviously cadaverous. But just a few lectures earlier, I made the case that the old King James is absolutely correct. It is take me. That's critical. They're correct in the, in the rendering of that. And once again, the old King James prevails. It captures the significance of the Hebrew. The others do not. That one does. And I, I keep asking, I got who here? 
So the take me works and the rest do not. Abraham is then commanded to take Christ. How can I know? Take me. How can I know I'm saved? The only way you can know you're saved is to take me. How does that prove that you're saved? I see the hands. Abraham is then command. I'm sorry, I propose that the similarity to 2 Kings 6.6 6 is unmistakable here. That's the lost axe head. What do you do to the lost axe head? It's a precious, unreplaceable, it's borrowed, it's an axe head. It's at the bottom of the river of death from Adam. Judgment and death. That's where it is. Joshua 3.16. And here's, uh, I'm going to read it really fast. So the man of God, that's Elisha, said, where did it fall? It's a fall. Where did the soul fall? And the one who lost his soul, and I'm, I'm explaining what what this means in, in 2 Kings 6, 6, in case you haven't heard it. Where did it fall? And the one who lost his soul, he shows the man of God where it fell, where it was lost. The place of the fall. He shows him. That's the place of the fall. He doesn't ask, where did you drop it? He asks, where did it fall? That's the place of the fall. Right there. The place of the fall. Come on. So, the man of God cut off a branch, Isaiah 11.1. Christ is the branch. And threw it into the river of death and judgment. The Jordan River. That descends into the Dead Sea. From Adam. Therefore, the, the man of God... Oh, I'm sorry. So he cut off the branch and threw it into the river and he, the man of God, made the iron axe head float. And therefore he said to the man, take it up. Just like Genesis 15. Take me, take me. Take it up for yourself. So the man that had lost his soul reached out his hand and took it. So that's why I think the take me is incredibly powerful. Obviously, Elisha, Elisha is portraying Christ retrieving the lost soul, the borrowed soul that you can't repay. You have no ability to, to take it up yourself. It has to be put into place where, where you can. Somebody has to retrieve it for you, float it for you. Ecclesiastes 12. It's a borrowed soul. Ecclesiastes 12.7. But notice the one who lost it was to reach out and take it for himself. 2 Kings 6.6 6 is clearly alongside Genesis 15.9 where the principle is first taught. So we see it repeated in, in uh, 2 Kings 6.6. 6. Belief, salvation is belief. Uh, salvation is a, is a belief system. A free will belief. Choosing, taking. The God of creation wills that none should perish. 2 Peter 3.9 He gave his capacity. He gave his, he has will. I asked that question. Did he give his will to us, the animals and the angels? He did. He gave it to us, the mankind, the animals and angels. Now, a lot of people think there's something different about the animals. And they, they don't have... And I've even thought this myself in the past. And I'm not so sure about it anymore. They, they do, I've said many times they don't have the capacity to reject Christ. Well, they might have the capacity to reject Christ. They just willfully don't. Or we willfully do. And the angels willfully do. So we'll get into that some other place. But that, that will absolutely explain Genesis 3.21. They will not do it. They would not do it. They have not done it. So, and that also explains Romans 5.14. So, again, angelic and mankind, we will reject God. We will reject our Creator. We will reject the salvation of our Creator. Matthew twenty five, forty one, the angels do, second Peter two, four through nine, the angels do, mankind, Revelation twenty, eleven through fifteen, and Romans three, nine through eighteen. Why the difference between the angels and mankind and the animal kingdom? Why would not the angels reject him, if that's the right way to say it? But just note the difference and ask why. Why are the animals withdrawn in this sense? Why why did they not Go along, if you want to think of it that way. And, and children are also, infants and children and animals have no accountability. 
When does the willful rejection begin? That's the age of accountability, right? I submit that Numbers 22, 28 through 30 answers the questions here that I just brought up. Feel free to go ahead and divert while I endeavor to persevere. Genesis 15.6, Genesis 15.8, Genesis 15.11, Genesis 15.13, and Genesis 15.10. Abraham did not cut the birds in two, Genesis 15.10. He did cut the animals in two. And all of these verses testify of the free will capacity of Abraham. And therefore mankind. And I said this to Terithi uh, before we started. Belief causes obedience. Obedience does not cause belief. What, are you crazy? So look at all of these different guys that say obedience is in authority over belief. No. Belief is the genesis of obedience. You see, take me can be said in a way that Goodall would approve. He would say, take infinity. Take the out of top. Because the only way you can know, the only way that you can know the truth, you can prove it, is to be infinite. So he would say, take infinity. Proof of truth must come from infinity. You have to be the Aleph Tav in order to prove anything. We can only know if we have been given salvation if the one who gives us the axe head to take is the Aleph Tav, the infinite one. Because he's the only one that knows. He knows because he's what? He's infinite. Just like Goodall would say. The relationship of salvation and infinity is on display in Genesis 15.9. How can I know? Take infinity. Take hold of the Aleph Tav. I, I am able to see every conceivable probability. And I know that you have salvation. That's how it works. I say often that consciousness must come from the consciousness one. In other words, his consciousness extends to us. He gave it to us. Life comes from the one who is life. Will comes from the one who has will. That's in John 11, 25 is the one who is life. Resurrection is likewise only from the one who can resurrect himself. John 2, 19 through 22. Eternal life is only given by the Aleph Tav. Because it's eternity. It's infinity. It requires infinity. Only the Aleph Tav can bestow infinity or eternity. The one who is the truth, John 14.6. He calls him, I'm the truth. Which means I know the truth. How can you know the truth? You have to be infinite to know the truth. The proof of truth cannot be separated from the Aleph Tav. Who in all of history has ever said that he is the truth and the Aleph Tav? Who said that? He's the infinite one. Only Jesus Christ did that. Did Kurt Goodall know that? I hope so. Because he figured it out. I hope he figured out who instead of what. Okay. The out of time, the infinity, will be in Genesis 15. I am obviously proposing that it is in the undivided two verbs. See? That's what I'm saying. And the undivided Birds connect to the two gates. Remember the two gates? One of those is Numbers 22, 26. Why does Christ guard the gate? He guards one gate. The other gate is wide open. Why does he protect it? Because that's what he's doing. Has he done this before? Would that give us a solution? If we could find out why he's guarding the gate uh, in Matthew, could we find out then... If he, if he guards another gate somewhere, would that help us? you think? Would that? Of course it would. Wow. Why are there two trees? Why did he protect the tree of life? Why did he guard it? Genesis 3.24 He guards the gate and he guards the tree of life. Now you're ready to go. It's the same reason. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, yep, yep. It's the same reason. You put those two together and you're on your way. Remember that great big list from Lecture 172, a bunch of twos? Uh, I rattled off 20 of them. There's at least another hundred. And I don't know how many there are because I can't know. 
There's Esau, Jacob. There's Rachel, Leah. There's Isaac, Ishmael. There's Cain and Abel. There's two floods. There's two witnesses. We could go all day. I didn't include those. The, the word is bitha. It's only in Genesis 15.10. And it doesn't mean divided or cut. It's the only place it's in the Bible is in 15.10 of Genesis. Does it mean cut or divided? You have to know. There's another one, way betha. Does that mean cut or divided? That's important to figure that out. And how is this Mother's Day? Probably wondered, when was Mother's Day coming? Here it is. Page 16, three minutes after I should have quit. Because what did I debunk? That's right. I just destroyed that moms know everything. Uh (laughs) It can't possibly be true. They're not infinite. So next time mom says, I know everything, you do not. You can't prove it. You don't know it and you can't prove it. Okay, call that good.